millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. On the last episode of Guilt. Okay, but this is where it gets really, really interesting. Somewhere between here and here they ran into a woman, that woman I was telling you about, the redhead woman they described. Her, their exact words were, a big redhead woman. He's looking at me, you know, and I thought, he's not pulling my leg. Yeah. And I'm like, must be a sheep, bro. And he's like, no, no, it's a body. And I'm like, no, nah, must be a sheep. He said, no, I can see the skull. He said, it'll be a sheep skull. He said, no, it's not, bro. And I'm like, fuck, he's serious. So I'll go and have a look. Oh, fuck, he's right. It's a body. It's a person. It's not a sheep. And he would just search for years, walking all the tracks, going off the tracks. It, it just, um, it could just consume them. I was the last one that probably ever saw them alive, and I, I've never told anybody. They've obviously been digging, and I've just pulled a bone out. There's a piece of bone right here. From Brevity Studios, I'm Ryan Wolf, and this is Guilt. I said this season of the podcast was effectively going to be broken into two parts. In the first seven episodes, or part one, we've explored the known elements of this case and the trial, spoken to some of the key witnesses and visited the locations involved. Now, we're going to begin the final series of episodes that through explosive new witnesses are going to completely rewrite the history of this case. Forget everything you've ever read in any book, seen in any documentary or court transcript. Because that's all about to change. This is part two of season three of Guilt. The Hunt. you'll recall when we started the very first episode of this season of guilt I was standing on a beach which is one of the most beautiful beaches anywhere you'll see it's typical New Zealand golden sand gentle slope beautiful anyway I was standing on this beach because I'm waiting because one of my brand new witnesses is in a police interview right now. So yeah, welcome back. As of this episode, we are now caught back up with where I was in the opening segment of episode one, standing on the beautiful Whangamata Beach. In the months since that day, my investigation 
has progressed further than I could have ever imagined. And soon enough, you'll all hear the truth about what really happened to Heidi and Urban. Right now, as I record this, it's all unfolding live. But let's jump back a few days from this beach I'm standing on to a phone call that changed everything. I was just at home in my office and as I do throughout the day I make calls to different people and I was about to start work on on something else and there was a name there and I just thought "Mm, maybe I'll give him a call now and uh, you know just get that out of the way and within a minute of that call my hairs were standing up on end just quite simply one of the if not the most important piece of witness evidence in any case I've looked at I immediately said hey mate I need to come meet you right now I cannot delay I'm not even going to make this tomorrow anything could happen so I'm in my car and I'm oh yeah hi it's Barry here hey Barry how are you thank, thank, thanks for calling me back yeah hey um my name's Ryan Wolf. I have a podcast uh, investigating unsolved New Zealand crimes. Yep. Um, and I'm currently, I've got a case at the moment that I'm working on um, trying to locate the body of Heidi Parkinen. Yep. Um, so, so just to, um, just to be clear, so it was, um, it was, was it your son, Darren, that, that saw? That's the, right. Yep. He saw the car. I was the last one that probably ever saw them alive. And I, I've never told anybody. Can, can, can I come over and meet with you? Yep. Okay, how about, uh, should I shoot uh, over this afternoon? Yep, shoot over any time. Must be just down here somewhere. I'm back in the Coromandel. However, this time... I'm not in Thames. I'm driving back into the beautiful beach town of Whangamata, where, if you'll recall, we started this season of the podcast. I'm pulling off into a street, looking for the address of a man who only a few hours ago told me that he was the last person to see Heidi and her barn alive. And what he's about to tell me is the first piece of a puzzle that's going to blow this case wide open. I'm going down into a bit of a random block here. There's a house on that's been relocated just still sitting on piles, on stilts I mean. Is this where Barry is? I don't know, is this fucking hell? As I make my way down through a paddock, a house that's been recently relocated sits on fresh piles. But it's empty, and I can't see any signs of life. Just as I'm thinking I must be in the wrong spot, I see ahead and down the hill, a gap through the trees, and a muddy gravel entranceway. A tiny cabin sits beyond, next to an old boat and a Toyota ute. I guess this must be the place. As I hop out of the car, I can't help but look up and see in the distance the thick forest of Parakawai and the location of the discovery of Urban Hogland's body in 1991. The cabin door slides open and a solid elderly man makes his way over to me. I hope not Barry, are you? Oh, hiya. Hey, how are you? Ryan. I'm deaf as a bat. Deaf as a bat? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Barry, though, eh? Yeah, Barry, Barry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shit, I had a hard time finding it. Drove up there and I had a hard time finding it. I drove up there and down there. <laughs> yeah, well, I had a bit of other things. What are you actually. So, what come, are we, come have come we got a spot to sit down? Here. Yeah, yeah. Sit down and get out of the noise. I can see where the guy was buried. Yeah. And. I still have that video in my mind every time I look up there and I see it. 
Well, let's sit down and tell me about it. This 30-minute, this 30-second video. Barry is 79 today and deaf as a bat and tells me that as he gets older, memory gets a bit fuzzier. But there's one memory that's been burned in his mind for the last 34 years, as vivid as the day he saw it. We pull up a couple of chairs in the cabin and he takes me all the way back to 1989. Um, I just think what you... So there's some people that used to come out to my farm all the time, every weekend. They... Everything around here, it's not what you know, it's who you know. A lot of these are second and third generations of people that have lived in the district. And their parents used to work for my parents. And they come and they work for me, you know, two generations later. And these people used to come out to my farm every weekend. And in the weekend, we'd go on motorbike trips. And we'd go through the bush. We'd go through the wires. We'd go fishing. We'd do a lot of things. See, what happened was I was, I used to own the farm out here. I had what they call, I had a thousand acre sheep farm. And I had it for eight years, but I struck it at the wrong time. The first year I bought it, I broke in three or four hundred acres of land. I had a lot of money because we sold a valuable farm in Waihe and we bought that as a rundown farm, but as a future long-term investment. And so what I was doing at the time, I had a piece of land up the Prakawai. It's just a, it was a small block on the right-hand side that went up and it was cut off by the river and an enjoying block. And it was a pain in the ass to farm. It was like only 30 acres and like my farm was a 1,000 acres and they have three 30-acre blocks all cut off with a main highway, a river and a piece of Maori land that ran right through it. And so the neighbour wanted to sell his farm, so I bought his farm and I got enough money, even with all that things that were going on, to buy it. So I doubled the size. I sold 100 acres and bought 250 acres or something. And so these people came out every weekend and they'd give me a hand. We'd go motorbike riding. Oh, shit, they used to, we used to go past that place a dozen times. We used to go through the bush and round and round. And Anyway, I sold that block and a woman in town bought a school teacher. And his wife used to have a, wanted to run a, a goat's. And she bought 10 acres and wanted fenced up into 10 little paddocks for goat farming. So I gave him a price. I said, oh, I could do it quite cheap for you, you know, seeing you bought the place and stuff. And um, I was fencing then. It was late in the afternoon like now. And I don't know what time of the year it would have been. But when I first bought the farm, I couldn't make out why all this traffic would used to go up that side road at 10 o'clock every morning. Ride, 3 what, o'clock what in the afternoon, all the traffic would come down the road. And of course, I didn't know, I hadn't been in town long enough to find out. And then I found out there were the school teachers' wives, uh, lawyers' wives, a whole lot were growing bloody dope. And so that was a general pattern. So I got to know who the cars were. But anyway, I was fencing away this day, and it was late in the day, about this time of the day, three or four o'clock in the afternoon, and this car came up, and it was unusual. Nobody went up that road that time of the night, because the valleys are so deep, they they go dark. Like, the sun goes out of the valleys at two o'clock in the afternoon. And I saw this car, it would have been doing not even 20 kilometres an hour. And it came up, and I just saw it, and it was a white, car, that's all I can remember, it's quite a small, it wasn't a big car, it was only a white one, and this guy would have been here to there from me, two metres. The window was wound down, first and the thing I noticed was, he was a merry guy, and he looked, reminded me straight away of um, Billy T. James, similar sort of face and that, but this guy had a straight deadpan it's yeah, expressionless face. And sitting with beside him was this beautiful blonde. And she was staring straight up the road, but I didn't see him. 
see her. She was looking straight ahead. He looked at me, and Coughlin was in the back seat, and the window was wound down on his side behind the drivers as well, and he was sitting like across the seat like this. Like casual. Just casually lying across the back seat. And I watched him, had proper eye contact with him. With, with Urban? And just as he was driving by like that. And I watched him. And I, what the fuck are those guys doing going up this, this time of the day? It didn't look right. And I didn't do anything about it at all, but at the time, my missus had just left me. And I was sort of down in the dump, and I didn't really want to be involved with anything, and um, so I just sort of left it. So more, so that... When Pardon? You, so, so when you saw them driving up... Yeah. What was the demeanour? Like, what did they... Well, he was just... It was the most express, expressionless face I'd seen. It was... Did the, like, did the driver look at you? He was looking straight at my face. When you said, Billy and that Ted. was the same car that I saw was the same car that my son saw. It's the same car that Mullen saw at a poultry beach. When it you was said, the same vehicle. When you said Billy T. James, what's oh. the what's the thing of his well, face? Well, it that was makes just the color of his skin, the dimensions of his face. He sort of had quite big teeth. Yeah, but it's. His face is down like that in the corners. It wasn't like a smiley face. So he turned and looked at yeah, you. Yeah, I was looking straight at him. He was looking at me. I saw it for probably 30 seconds, the whole thing. And when they drove away, what did you think? Were you... What in the hell are they doing going up here this time of the day? How late did you stay fencing that day? Well, I was there for half an hour or an hour. I would have worked until just before dark. So you never saw them come never back? Never saw them come back out. Let me pause for a moment to remind you that according to police, the last time Heidi Parkinen and Urban Hoglin were ever seen alive was Friday the 7th of April, when they had their hair cut in Thames. And according to the police's theory of the events that took place, Heidi Parkinen and Urban Hoglin were never in Fongamatar. They were met by David Tamahedi while tramping up the Tararu track at the end of Tararu Creek Road, 73 kilometres away. And the road that Barry was fencing on the day he saw the white car drive past with Heidi and Urban and the mystery driver? Have you guessed this part? It's Parakawai Quarry Road. This is the remote road that accesses the thick bush where Urban Hogland's body would be discovered by Darren Old and Jamie Corbin in 1991. But how could this be? Like I said, this is only the beginning. So much more is yet to come. But I can assure you that everything that's ever been believed is about to change. Yeah. All I did was I saw them go up I knew it was unusual. So in the back, Urban, he was just chilling out. He was just chilling out. He had long hair right down to the ear. Uh, He was just sitting there like this, across the back seat. And I looked straight at him. And both of them were looking at me, but she wasn't. She was looking straight ahead. So we'd have to think, at that point, they're just calm like they're just going for a drive or something that's what see that's why I dismissed it this might sound silly but what percentage would you say you thought that that was Heidi and Urban in that car that day how positive are you that that was them oh that was them definitely no two ways about it she was so blonde there was nobody in Wongamata that looked like her she was really attractive looking person what I could see and that's what that was a bit that struck me was how such a neat blonde could be in that car with a guy that was so dead the opposite. It was just his dead, what I call deadpan face. Just no expression on his face whatsoever. Yeah. It just, his eyes were not, you could see his eyes. They were, you know, they were quite, to me, they looked. They weren't overly large, but 
they looked straight at me. His teeth, he had a full set of teeth because I saw those quite clearly. So he must have had his lips opened a bit, but it's, it was down like that. And that was so strange. Yeah. It was just the contrast between the people. You know, um, oh, what in the hell's going on here? It's massive. Barry. It was only like 30 seconds. But that's lived with me all my life. But I'm at peace with it, eh? It doesn't worry me. I always, every time I go up there and I look up there, I see that video in my mind. So clear, even today. Not as much as what it was, say, 10 years ago. But I can still visualise it. Yeah. That car just going like that. And how fast was it driving? Oh, like I said... Hardly even walking pace. It was so slow. That's a bit that got me was, what are they doing? Driving so slow. And it was uh, the people in the car. It was a, not a match, you know what I mean? They, it was so unusual. I don't know what it is. I pick on things like that. Eh? I seem to have quite a memory for things like that. So that's what one guy kept coming and he said, fuck, you've got some memory. Look, I can tell you what I did. I can tell you exactly what I did 30 years ago. When you saw Urban in the back of the car, you know, when you saw Urban in the back of the yeah. car, he was he looked fine, like not hurt or anything? No, no, no. He was just sitting there. Yeah, he had just relaxed like this across the back seat, lying there like this sort of thing. I was that close. He could... What happened is my boundary, when they put the road in, they put it, my survey pegs were the actual water table of the bloody road. But on the other side, they had a road reserve of 20 metres wide. Like the road should have been shifted over, you know, five or six metres, and there was no road frontage. My boundary fence was right on the edge of the, the metal road. Yeah. Shit, it's bloody hell. Would we be able to, um, you know, we don't, you're busy now, but. No, I'm not busy. I'm, but I'd love to go see with a spot where you yep. said you saw them. Um, how long would it take us to get there from oh, here? 10 minutes. Should we go for a drive? Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. Want to? Yeah, yeah. Yep. The implications of this sighting and what it could potentially mean are massive. If Barry was just some random guy off the street, I'd be sceptical. But he isn't. Barry owned 1,000 acres of land in the Parakawai area in 1989. We haven't got into it in detail yet, but it was in fact Barry's son, Darren Lindsay, that reported seeing the white Subaru station wagon parked 100 metres from where Urban's body would eventually be found. So the big question about Barry's sighting when I need some way to corroborate this story it's been 34 years since Heidi and Urban's murders perhaps Barry could be recalling a sighting from years later and over time he's made it fit well Barry has the answer he doesn't know the exact date but he knows who will but I didn't ring a bell. It wasn't until the woman that I was fencing for, Waverly Vaughan, who still lives in Wangamata here, she was said, oh, I've got a diary. And when I looked up the diary and we had the big meeting up here, you were fencing on the roadside. So, so she knows the date? So she would have the date. Fucking hell. Good morning. Hey, is this Waveney? It is. How are you today? I'm good, thank you, Ryan. Thank you very much for um, for getting back to me. And yes. um, I don't know, did you own property up there at the time in, in that vicinity? Yes, 
we had a lifestyle block uh, on the on that little road that went up into the bush. Yeah. That um, where Urban Hoglin's body was found, the Parakawai, mm. Parakawai Road. Yes. So how far? Yes. So if you turn off of the main state highway twenty five, mm. how far down that road are you? Uh, we were the one right on the corner with the yep. corner between the main road corner. Okay, that's right. So, so what happened? Barry says that he was out there fencing, and he right. and he said he yes, was... he did do some fencing for me. That's quite true. We didn't live out there at the time. We bought that block as a piece of bare land, and I had some uh, dairy goats, and I needed some fences to keep them in. And yes, I um, but I knew Barry was a good fencer. We'd known Barry for some time because we'd lived in Wangamata for many years. And uh, yes, he, that would be true. He would have been. I know he did fencing for me. What year was this? Yes, yeah, so this was nineteen eighty nine. Eighty nine. Oh yeah, yeah. So you owned that property at that time. Yes. Yeah. Yes, we hadn't owned it for very long, but oh, as I say, we didn't live on it at the time. But I was getting fencing done. He Barry said that you used to keep diaries of of work that was done for you. Um, well, no, I don't actually think I did. I'm not very good at record keeping. Um, and I don't know whether I've got any of my old records from that time now. I think I might have, you know, I would have kept all my um, accounts and payments and things like that. But, um, I... I could have a look for you and see whether, even if I've got a receipt that's or an account that shows when Barry did that fencing for me. Mm. I, I know it's a big. Of... I know it's a big ask. Hello. Hi, Waveney. Yes. Hi, Ryan. Hey, how are you? Um, have you had a chance to um have a look at, at that property purchase? I have been hunted through all my paperwork, but unfortunately, uh, when I moved house, I buffed a whole lot of old, old stuff out, and I think that's where it's gone, unfortunately. So I could actually look it up, but I need to know which yes. property it was. Do yeah, you... that's that's quite... Um, the only way I've tried to find out what the rapid... Those rural properties were allocated a rapid number. Okay. Test. <sighs> okay, so it is a horrible day outside. But more importantly, so I've been sent through uh, just following on from where we were. Um, with Barry's sighting, which is, you know, pretty big stuff. It might, you know, it might seem small, but it's actually extremely key, placing Heidi and her barn both alive up that same that same road. Uh, so speaking to Waveney Vaughan, she was not able to find her uh, property files related to when they bought that property. Now, just going back here, Clearly, the timing of when Barry saw that car with who he says was Heidi and her barn in it is crucial because we're going back 34 years here. Um, you know, who knows? He might be getting confused and he might have seen something five years later. Uh, you know, a similar couple. And I'm sure that there are other couples who look similar over the decades. But anyway, so I've been sent. Uh, I've been sent some a certificate of title, which I've just putting out here now. So a friend of mine, and thanks, you know who you are, uh, has pulled the certificate of title for the property on Prakawai Quarry Road. Uh, it took a little bit of finding to figure out which one it was. And let's have a look here. Okay, oh, here we go. Right, so this is going back. So this certificate of title is subject to blah, 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 1979. Okay. All right, so it's got... So Okay, so we can see here going back through, we've got 
1997 it was transferred. 1991 it was transferred. Okay, and then coming back here, transfer to Reginald Thomas Vaughan, Deputy Headmaster, and Janet Waverney Vaughan. Okay, that's that's what we want to see. Housewife, you know, it was the 80s. Both of Fongamata. And the date, 28th of the 9th, 1988. It couldn't be a better timing. According to Waveney Vaughan, she says that Barry did fencing for her and it was some time after she bought that property. She said it would have been somewhere late 1988 after they bought the property into the beginning of 1989. And remember, the time we're looking for is the beginning of 1989. April. April is is when the Swedes went missing, the beginning of April. Now, this gives us, this doesn't lock down an exact date. It doesn't. Waveney said she doesn't have an exact diary anymore. She doesn't have those records. It's been that long. But what it does say is that we're looking at the right time period. Barry told me it was a big job. This fencing job took a long time. I mean, remember we talked about that circumstantial rope when we were talking about Tamahedi's case. I feel like let's start making a new piece of circumstantial rope over here. And here's the first piece of the puzzle. All right. That's good. That's what I want to see. This is, uh, this is good stuff. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hey there it's michelle norris i'm host of a podcast called your mama's kitchen when i travel i'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when i'm not at home and one of the things i love to do when i am at home is entertain and airbnb allows me to do that when i was in california recently i rented a house that had a great kitchen and when we were sitting around the table we're all thinking we're in someone else's house someone could be in all of our homes as well If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Let's just pull over and have a quick... Show me, are you showing me where you were? Yeah. Yeah. Probably right about here. This was a metal road in those days. So the metal would have been right to here. So that's the distance I would have been away from the car. And I just looked up there and I just saw this car coming very slow. It was only a bit faster than walking pace and it came up and the road was lower than what it is now and I saw him he would have been probably there away from me so like sort of here from there to there I saw him she was there she was looking straight up that way he was looking straight at me and he was in the back seat, right over on the other side, looking this way. His window was open as well, on this side. And I saw him, and you know, there was nothing. It was just, I just saw him sitting relaxed onto the back seat. And I just watched him. 
what in the hell, because there was nothing, nothing here that was all farm paddock at the time, there were no trees, and like that was all grazing paddock, and I just watched them. Uh, yeah. And that's all I saw. And around here, none of these There was houses. no houses here, there was nothing here, it was just open farmland. So this was all grass, because I owned all this and it was all grazing paddock. Yeah. And so this is where I was standing, this is where I was fencing, that would be the boundary. I had netting on the fence, um, so that would be it. The water table was right here, the road was about there. Yeah. I can't overstate how important the sighting is in this case. Remember that according to police, no one ever saw Heidi and her barn after that haircut in Thames. There is little doubt that whoever this person was driving the vehicle must be in some way connected to their disappearance. This is without doubt the most important sighting in the history of this case. Barry said he looked this man in the eyes from a distance of about two metres. We'll get into possible identification at a later point. But he described him as looking like Billy T. James. Billy T. James was arguably New Zealand's most celebrated comedian, so I hate to use him as a point of reference, but that's what we have. In short, Billy T. was a Māori man of a somewhat darker complexion who was well known for having a bushy moustache. So would he look similar to David Tamahiri? Without a doubt. Who knows? Shit, that's clear water down there, eh? Yeah. Yeah. It'll get clearer. It's a bit murky with the rain. Yeah. This is known as the car park. So you're right on the car park here. They would have been parked in here. Now look at that. Yeah. It was very similar back then. It wasn't much different. Nothing's really changed here over 30 years except the trees have got a bit bigger. Oh, so those trees would have still been here, but this bit is yeah. just... Oh, this is the scrubby shit that's come up. Well, it's interesting. If it was Heidi and Urban Barry saw in the car that day, and I believe it was, then why would they be here? Why... Would Urban be relaxed in the back seat while someone else drove the car? Up here, in this remote place. There are a few possibilities. But after some basic research of the area, there was one that immediately stood out to me. Parakawai Quarry Road, where Barry saw the Swedes, terminates after only a few kilometres. And at this spot, is a small car park, a swimming hole, and a campsite. And an easy walking trail leads to a beautiful waterfall. It's a stunning location. The river sweeps around a corner, the sound echoing off the cliffs in the forest. I guess you'd call it a hidden gem. While people do come here, it's not well known to travellers particularly in the days before the internet. But of course, to locals, those that knew the area well, this would certainly be a spot you might recommend. And interestingly, Barry Lindsay's wife at the time made a statement to police that she saw a white Subaru station wagon parked in this car park sometime in early April of 1989. Ships come up. Well, it's interesting too, because I wonder if his mum was down here. You, you have to be right here to see the cars, you know, so it's not like you're going to, you're not like you're looking from 500 metres away. She must, what, you know. No, they would have driven up here and parked in here. Yeah. Yeah, they drove up here. Yeah, yeah I mean, his mum. Yeah, his mum. Yeah, yeah. What would she be doing up here? Going for a walk. Yeah. Who knows? But yeah, what I mean is, you know, it's not like she drove past and, oh... Like no, she no. literally came right she up here. She literally pulled up in here. And turned around and saw the vehicles. They either drove off or went for a walk or whatever. 
um, I'd have to, yeah. There's the quarries over there, we'll go. Yeah. You think, you know, like, could could they have been lured down here by David or whoever it is? Yep. And then they do this, they go see the waterfall, and then they're driving on the way back, and for whatever reason he tells them to go up there. Yeah, remember David. David has a thing about talking to tourists and showing them around. Yeah, he does. He's yeah. always had that, and that's a fact. He's always been like that. So there's a very good chance that he's met them and befriended them, and then everything's happened from there. And he sort of steered the whole thing with a motive. Alan is exactly right. Remember that it's a fact that on April 11th, 1989, the day after he says he stole the car from Tararu Creek Road, Tamahedi took three tourists for a tour of the Coromandel in Heidi and Urban Subaru. One of those tourists, Hakan Bokul, recalled how astounded he was by Tamahedi's knowledge of the Coromandel and its Māori history. Oh, did you want to go over this way? Yeah, to the quick one. So that's where they would have been working. Yeah. And they said that they love camping in New Zealand next to Flea. Did you read that? Um, they used to tell their friends at home they used to find a place by a stream. And they'd sleep. <coughs> yeah, it's a beautiful spot. Oh, it is, yeah. There's the old Ford set there. Yeah. It's actually washed away in the middle. It was, it's been like that when I used to come here. It's always been like that. But hey, they could have been parked there, you just don't know. Oh, I would say, yeah. That's what a witness is saying. Yeah, 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 exactly. I know it's quite eerie when you, you're here and you think... Somebody's walked up there, see the little ship's broken? Mm. Oh, no, no. Just come it's down. fallen down, yeah, you can see. Mm. I mean, like you said, this sort of staying in this spot fits their sort of MO of what they, of what they like. Alan and I wander across the small gravel car park and follow the path over a bridge crossing the Otahu River, where it opens into a small grass area hidden in the trees. It's a dead end due to a huge wall of loose rock from an abandoned quarry. Some beer bottles sit next to an old fire. I can't help but have a very eerie feeling here. It's very remote. Down the end of this road, in the thick bush, with cliffs on all sides. It may be beautiful, but I wouldn't want to camp here on my own throughout the night. I'll share a few photos of this spot on my Instagram. Alan and I jump back in the ute and make our way the few kilometres back down Parakawai Quarry Road. As we drive, I look up at the walls of this dark valley and wonder what secrets it holds. What is this stone scene? On our left, we pass the site we thought police had found human bones in episode 1. Today, the water just meanders around the bend, as it has done for thousands of years. Then another minute on the gravel road, turns sharply left, then down into a ford of water. It's the forest road that leads up to the location of Urban's discovery, a place I now know all too well. Then we slow at the site Barry says he saw Heidi and Urban, driving slowly with the man with the expressionless face. The fence Barry built still stands today. He showed me the exact twist in the wire he made at the moment they drove past that afternoon, possibly to never return. Today, just a small but strangely significant artefact that connects the past to the present. There's another reason we came to Parakawai today, other than to visit the waterfall. And this is a campground in the Wentworth Valley, directly over the ridge from Parakawai. And as the crow flies, only 900 metres up the hill, 
to where Urban's body would be discovered. And Wentworth Valley Campground has significance, other than its close proximity. It's here that three witnesses, Lynn Jones, David Thorpe, and David Reed, saw David Tamahedi while mountain biking. Between the 3rd and 5th of April, only days before Heidi and Urban would eventually disappear. Here is an extract of David Reed's testimony in Tamahedi's trial that I've paraphrased for clarity. During Easter of last year, I was visited by my friends David Thorpe and Lynn Jones. I planned a mountain bike excursion up Wentworth Valley. I think from memory this was on the Monday following Easter weekend, April 3rd. We rode as far as the waterfall because it gets a little bit rough after that. We stopped there and had a bit of lunch. We met a bloke coming out of the bush. He had come from further up the track, down to where we were, from the Hikataya end. Initially, he was a bit startled when he saw us, but after a few moments, he sort of relaxed a bit. I recognised the man I saw that day as the man sitting in the court, David Tamahedi. I remember he had quite a heavy pair of work boots and quite a large sheath knife at his side. He had a fairly large pack that he carried high up on his back. He took that off and talked to us for about 20 minutes. We were just talking about pleasantries, where he'd been, weather and stuff like that. He said he'd been in the bush for quite a while, months, and that he was able to survive eating plant life, edible vegetation from the bush. I noticed he had quite piercing eyes. He seemed fairly familiar with the area and had some quite detailed maps we were looking at. After that, he headed off back down the track towards Wentworth Campground. We ran into him again down there. He didn't have his pack. He said he'd hidden it in the trees to stop people vandalising it, and that he was heading into Wangamata to get supplies. And this extract... I've paraphrased from David Tamahedi's own testimony when he took the stand. On Sunday, April 2nd, I crossed over from Wires Camp into the Wentworth Valley. I ran into Mr. Thorpe and Mrs. Jones bike riding or something like that, about four or five kilometres up the bush near Wentworth Falls. There's no denying that Tamahedi was at the Wentworth campground between April 3rd and 5th. Tamahedi claims he stayed on the 2nd and left on the 3rd, but the mountain bikers placed the date somewhere between the 3rd and the 5th. Tamahedi was not seen again, by anyone, until he checked into the Sunkiss Lodge on April 10th, after he says he stole the car. We need to bear in mind that Tamahedi also didn't necessarily want to be seen. He had been on the run for two years after fleeing bail on the rape charge. At the time of the investigation, police had zero interest in any possible sightings of Tamahedi or the Swedes in the Fongamata area, which includes Parakawai and the Wentworth Valley. According to their theory, everything took place 73 kilometres away at Crosby's Clearing, a difficult five-hour tramp from the Tararu Creek Road end in Thames. The proximity of Barry's sighting, Tamahedi's last known position in Wentworth Valley, and the location of the discovery of Urban's body is 2.5 kilometres. If we were to assume it was Tamahedi that Barry saw driving the car that day, then clearly he must have met them somewhere. But where? Well, there's one place that jumps to the top of that list. The Wentworth Valley Campground. All right, I'll give you a wee look around this uh, campground. So, got some kids playing down there. So it's actually a really, really nice little spot. It's got heaps of different, different areas. See over here. Nice... Uh, Nice wee open area through here. I guess they must open this up in summer, but very cool. You can imagine this packed out in summer. I think Manuka trees all over the place. 
really cool and it heads right back up through there you got your barbecue facilities your toilet showers and that kind of jazz yeah very nice Wentworth Valley campground it's run by Doc pretty cheap 15 New Zealand is a small place eerily this audio is from an overnight camping trip to the Wentworth Valley campground me and my fiance took in October of 2021. It also holds a bit of a special meaning to me, as our hike to the waterfall was the last adventure of my then 11-year-old German shepherd Semper before he passed. But the point is that it's an absolutely fantastic campground, with large areas of grass, surrounded by forest, a river, and the Wentworth waterfall. It's exactly the kind of spot a couple touring New Zealand could decide to spend the night. Could they have met Tamahiri here and been persuaded to take a tour of the immediate area? Perhaps to the Parakawai waterfall on the other side of the valley? I want to go back and take another look at the Wentworth area. And on the way there, we happen to see a farmer working on his tractor. So we pull over to have a chat. The community in this area is small. And it seems everyone has some connection to this case. The farmer's name is John Shearer. And he's been a landowner in this area for decades. And in 1989, he was very familiar with the location Urban's body was discovered. And, um, and yeah, and they just came across the, the body. And, um, but yeah, the funny thing is, I supposedly a human body does smell and I was up there every second day because I had cattle there I, I leased that for about 12 years or something and um, I never smelled anything eh? not, not, and it was so close to the, the fence the track just at that place where the fence comes through and there's, and there's grass there and then um, oh, I don't know if they have puri trees are there big puri trees there Massive big puri trees, anyway, that's where, you know, um, looked like he dragged it to it, um, because the arms were back like this, mm. so he just dragged him yeah. back and just left there. And as I say, that's not far from the actual track, and um, you'd have thought that I, I would sort of go to the top and turn around come down, but I had, you know, there were some fences still there. Yeah, and um, I doubt whether there's any fences there much there now up in the actual block so. uh, constantly I'd go up there and the gate would have been run over there's a padlock on the gate and whoever wanted to get in or out of there would just drive over the gate the pipe gate was mangled quite a bit I um, you know there wasn't meant to be anybody up there I was leasing it off New Zealand, um, oh, I don't know who they are. Uh, it could have been uh, with um, uh, who had that then New Zealand Forest Service or something or other. It was this whole piece, the Tyro State Forest. Um, yeah, so uh, either the, the chain would be cut or whatever, there's always a padlock on the gate. And um, Supposedly what has happened is that, uh, and what was happening is my rising three-year-old cattle were just going missing. And I found out from Barry Lindsay later, and I said, well, is there anybody go up that road that like looks a bit suspicious? He says, well, I see a, a, a car going up there with a horse float. Well, they were just going up with a horse float and winching, shooting the animal and winching it straight in and taking off. And I lost, oh, lost about 20 head of cattle. 
they were they were just going through the gate and leaving it open and that's how they were able to get in there because it had a sign to say that it was a forestry road and and that, what are they green or something or rather just they're not yellow like AA signs but um, this well whoever yeah the Swiss couple went up there um, just saw the gate open and drove almost to the top where they would have stopped was a there was a rock there with a hole in it like a little quite a big rock and just further up were these I don't know if they were puri or I don't, don't know I think they were just huge puri trees um, and there was just a green like grassy sort of a place where it wasn't planted in trees and that's supposedly where they found him they however I don't know what they how they actually killed him picked up behind him and whacked him on the head or something I don't know but they had their camp in this little green grass on that side of the fence and he was pulled back through the fence and he was underneath the tree or something you know just back off so that couldn't see him, but didn't try to disguise him more. So is that, is that what you, you thought that they had actually gone up there themselves to, to camp and you reckon someone stumbled across them when they were there? Oh totally totally, they went up there not be, just being, here's a road oh you know we're Swiss people are very outdoorsy kind of people, they're just like roughing it and whatever and just oh well we'll just head off up here and uh, the gate was down or open or whatever which annoyed me you know immensely because that's how I had to go up every other day just to put the gate back up and um, I had a diary it was lucky I had a diary because the police grilled me something terrible for days and they were just saying that I'd done it because I I, I was the person who had access up there so I'd done it you know and it's just the only thing that saved me that I, I've kept a, a diary and I said well there you are Read the diary. Do you still have that diary? I suppose I still have it somewhere, yeah. Because the whole thing about them potentially camping there, and if that were true, I've never, that's not something that's, have you ever heard that before? That would be new. Um, <laughs> Is that new? Well, it was common for us. Oh, so people would commonly park up up no, there? No, 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 no. It was like, um, uh, oh, whatever his name was, was camping up here in the Wentworth. Tamahiri. Yeah. Yeah. He was in the Wentworth. Mm. Well, well, he was camping there, and um, people would go up, you know, to look at the waterfall and whatever, and leave their cars, and they'd come back, and things would be missing. He'd milk the tank, or uh, you know, they'd run into town. Anything that was in the car was going missing, and it was going missing for ages. Now the Wentworth River goes there, and there's there's the camp, and then a little bit further up, there's quite a big green, grassy place. Well, he had his everything there well they found that two years later they found that camp with everything in it that he'd flogged two years later the, the tent and everything was still there and it was only then that they realised that it had all started up here <clears throat> and, and, the, and the locals they'd, they'd told the police they'd everything they just wouldn't listen but the people, Wangatar people that used to like going up there and swimming in the swimming hole and, and whatever uh, had noticed yep. and said that he was up there, like, you know, yeah. they said that he was, um, he had a camp across the stream yeah. and the police wouldn't, ta- they just never, just didn't even bother, just mm. go away. You and know, would, it's all happened yeah. in Thames, it's not, you know. Mm. And it wasn't until they found his body that it actually came back. That was two years later. Yeah. If you come to Wormata and you're a visitor and you're an overseas person, you go to the information and they'll say, well, um, or a question, well, where are all the high spots? What, what can we see while we're here? Oh, have you been up to Wentworth? That's the first thing they say, have you been up to Wentworth? So they would have gone up to Wentworth. Possibly he could have met them there and gone. That's the only other way. That's back to front to your thinking of. But the other thing is, um, they also say, well, have you been up to the swimming hole um, in the Prakawai? 
John said something that you are going to get very familiar with over the remaining episodes of this podcast. Police wouldn't listen. During the investigation, Whangamata locals repeatedly told police that they should be looking in the Wentworth area because it was well known that David Tamahiri had one of his secret camps hidden in the bush near the campground. And sure enough, when the body was eventually discovered, police would search the area and find the secret camp. Also, within that 2.5 kilometer radius of the body's location and Barry's sighting. In 1989, Heidi Parkinen and Urban Hoglin spent five amazing months travelling around New Zealand. Sadly, they were due to fly out only two weeks after they were last seen. As I've investigated this case, I've simply followed the evidence. But my focus has shifted. Like I said when I was on the shores of Lake Taupo some weeks ago, sometimes I feel like I'm following in their footsteps. Now it's time to take out a map and draw a huge X. Because as it was for Heidi and her barn in 1989, it is for me today. And all roads lead to Parakawai. The weather hasn't been that good since we came to the North Island on March 17th, and right now it's raining. It's starting to get cold during the nights. We may get away with it, as we have just four weeks left here. Otherwise, everything has gone really well with sleeping arrangements. We haven't paid for one single night since the 29th December 1988 in Auckland. Most of the time you can find a nice little grass spot close to a small river. The tent feels like home now. Urban. Guilt is a Brevity Studios production. Written, produced and narrated by me, Ryan Wolf. All opinions expressed in this podcast are exactly that. Opinions. And are not a statement of fact by the podcast itself. All persons named are presumed innocent unless proven otherwise in a court of law. Voice acting in this episode, Joachim Berg as Urban. If you have any information related to the murders of Heidi and Urban, you can email us anonymously at brevitystudiosnz at gmail.com. You'll find further photos and video on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ, and I highly recommend you join the discussion with thousands of other Guilt listeners on Facebook at the Guilt Podcast Discussion Group. Guilt is a 100% independent production. We've never received a single dollar in taxpayer funding. And you can support us to continue to make great content, plus get ad-free listening, bonus episodes and early release by becoming a Brevity Plus subscriber on Apple or Acast Plus. You'll find the details of how to do this in the show notes of every episode. This podcast was written and edited without the use of AI. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.